Hello, and welcome to Brain in a Vat. Today, I'll be co-hosting again with Raja Halwani, and we're talking to Laurie Watson. Laurie, would you like to start with a real-life case? I would. Thanks very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So when it comes to first initiating thoughts about prostitution and or sex work, one question is what to call it. And we can maybe think about that as we move forward. I use the word prostitution. Others would not be a fan of that word. There's an, an interesting intuition or judgment that people generally share, which is that if someone and engaged in prostitution or being prostituted, that there's something morally and legally very concerning about that. And so that underage or minority people, largely women, but not exclusively in prostitution are seen as incapable of consent, at least legally, and in a position to be assisted, to exit, to be given resources, to be perhaps protected, depending on one's point of view. But interestingly, at 18 and one day, some people's view about that shift, such that adult engaging in prostitution and selling sex becomes an entirely different analysis. And there are many studies that show the majority of women, especially who are in prostitution, begin under the age of 18. And one question that arises is if one begins under the age of 18, why is the 18 a magic marker in which the history that comes before now is not relevant to how we might think about that specific person's life or the lives of people in that position? So I like the argument. I have a question though. Couldn't you use the same form of argument to argue that all sex is wrong? Because (laughs) sex that's under the age of 18, we think is wrong under certain circumstances, under most circumstances, maybe with an older partner, maybe all circumstances. And then they turn 18 and then we say, okay, it's fine. But we want to say it is fine once they turn 18. So the same form of argument doesn't seem to work for sex generally, but works, you're saying, for prostitution. Why would there be a disanalogy for the same form of argument? I think and the important thing when considering state policy or making judgments about the permissibility of transactional sex, for me, the most important thing is what are the empirical facts on the ground? How does this system work as a matter of fact? This is why we didn't start with your traditional thought experiments I expressed at the beginning. I I prefer not to do that because I think it's not that helpful uh, in this context. And so I think what we need to know about people who uh, are sold for sex uh, or sell themselves for sex, generally there are conditions of inequality that have pushed and shaped and landed them there. And so coercion, even if just the coercion of inequality or the coercion of starving or being homeless is a sufficient factor, is a significant, excuse me, significant factor in what leads people into processes of prostitution. And I don't think that is true for all of sex, although certainly huge age gaps are suspect, but a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old having sex or a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old is very different than a 15-year-old and a 50-year-old. That's another topic, but I think the main thing is there are push factors as they're called in the literature, that lead people into prostitution. And those are connected with inequality of age, of race, of geopolitical location, 
of economics, of indigenous static, and, and so on. And so there are reasons that we will find that the people in prostitution are also the most unequal along other social, socially salient measures. Lori, if I can pick up on something you just said, by the way, I think it's a fascinating issue to talk about at some point, if we can today, about the labeling, the naming, whether it's prostitution, yeah. it's work. Just very briefly, last fall, I, had a, I was teaching philosophy of sex class, and I used the word prostitution, and one of my students immediately dropped the class. And she went and right. complained to her She was like, my teacher is insensitive, blah, blah, blah. And it's an interesting issue to, to discuss. And I, but I wanted to pick up and ask a question on something that you mentioned at, towards at the end of your answer, which is, so you, if I understand you correctly, you use the notion of age as one example of the kind of factors that often push women to go into this kind of work, basically, or work, quote unquote, if I, that mm -hmm. go to kind of work. But you also mentioned other factors. So their race, their potential class belonging, I think. So is it in your view, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. So it's in your, is it in your view that given the realities of the world, basically, women who tend to go into prostitution, go into it under some form of coercion, whether that, co and that, that coercion could be due to multiple factors, age being one of them, race being another. I was wondering if you can just say a little bit more about that, basically. Yeah, that's what the empirical evidence shows, that everywhere you look, whatever the legal framework is, whether it's full criminalization, and I can define these terms if you want, or partial legalization, decriminalization, the people in prostitution are overwhelmingly women, although gay male prostitution has increased, since, especially apps like Grindr and so on have developed. But it's overwhelmingly women. It's overwhelmingly women of color. It's overwhelmingly women who are not just struggling economically, but are seriously impoverished. And the empirical information suggests that it's not that it's one option among any that some people then, quote, choose. It's an option of necessity or of a form of force that may not be, although sometimes is, direct coercion of a handler or a pimp or a trafficker, but is often the coercion of homelessness, children to feed, drug addiction, and things of that nature. But I would love to talk about the what to call it question, because it's certainly true in 2023 that I, as a feminist, hold a minority position, which if you looked you know, back 20, 30 years, that would not have been true. And so my view is, in the academy at least, not necessarily among regular people thinking about the issues, a minority view. Most people favor some form of decriminalization and, and or some form of legalization. And so in the book that I wrote on this topic, Debating Sex with Jessica Flanagan, she is a professor at Richmond and a libertarian, and she argues for full decriminalization, which is defined as no penalties for either buyers or people who are in prostitution and selling sex. I defend what's called the equality model or the Nordic model, which is an asymmetrical approach in which there are criminal penalties associated with buying and no criminal penalties associated with selling in addition to state, state support for exit. And in the places in which you ever have legalization uh, or decriminalization, which there's subtle differences there, but in effect, decriminalization full across the board 
ends up being a form of legalization because there is no contact in which it's full hands off. Even in places that call their policy decriminalization like New Zealand, there are legal regulations of prostitution, including age verification, age requirements, condom requirements, no trafficking rules, and things of that nature. So there is no fully decriminalized just states looking the other way. There is no. So it's partial legalization. The main difference turns on whether legalization, like in Germany, involves access to Social Security benefits if one registers, which almost no one does. For two reasons, many of the people in Germany who are working in brothel prostitution, which is overwhelmingly the dominant form of prostitution, are undocumented and trafficked in from Eastern European states or South America. The other is that even German citizens, women who are engaged in prostitution, do not want to register because they don't want it on an official record that because many of them think this is a temporary thing until they can get their feet on the ground and they don't want that record to be publicly available. And so very few avail themselves of that official status, which would entail social security benefits and also change the nature of employment contracts, which is some of what we may get into. This is how I got into this topic is thinking about the word sex work is work like any other form of work, which is the slogan used by many activist groups. And the second chapter of my book is an effective reductio of that view. Jason, can I ask a quick follow-up question? And then I'll... So, Lori, I, I'm, I'm sure you've dealt with this before, but this issue of consent and about the terrible conditions under which women often go into prostitution. I wonder, similar arguments have also been made about women going into sweatshops, having to work as cleaning ladies under some difficult conditions in different parts of the world. In the Arab world, for example, we rely on the maid system in which we right. support women from Sri Lanka, from Ethiopia. They are often treated horribly. There are, this is a very compli complex factor. And is there, so is there an in is there an in-principle difference between the type of situations that lead women to go into sex work versus the type of situations that lead women to go into these other kind of difficult jobs and such that those situations are really ones of even more duress than the other types of situations? Or is it one of those things where somebody says, look, this world is full of injustices, basically. And I've made it my choice to focus on the kind of injustices that result from sex work. And I do not deny that those other types of jobs are equally or almost equally forms of coercion also. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I say lots of those jobs are forms of coercion as well. The typical kinds of objections I get involve football, a high-risk activity that is undertaken and may result in brain damage that work or fishing, other things. So I guess this is where the empirical stuff becomes, I think, really critical. Many people have asked me in a world and counterfactually, no one was harmed in this way and there was full consent of what would be your view. And in a way, my answer is, I don't know, <laughs> because that requires me to imagine human beings other than they are in certain respects. But I also think that under conditions of full equality, my hypothesis is people wouldn't trade tech for money. 
And my kind of tongue-in-cheek argument for that is in the most equal spaces of the world, white male CEO boardrooms, they're not trading sex as a bartering system. And so I think substantive equality undercuts the idea that this would be a form of trade people would engage in. But aside from that, so here's my view. Yes, sweatshops are horrible. They're oppressive. They should be reformed. But I do think that there is something unique about sex, which is just an empirical set of observations and not a moralistic claim. It's critical to me that my argument doesn't turn on moralism about the integrity of sex and sexuality, meaning that have all the promiscuous sex you want. Yay. Good for you. But when you're under the control of another person's body for an exchange, which prostitution is, there have been enormous amounts of study about the kind of trauma that follows from that. And one such study done by Melissa Farley identified in a population of about a thousand uh, people in prostitution that 68% of them met the conditions for post-traumatic stress disorder. That's higher than relevant studies of combat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. That got me thinking in terms of, okay, so what is it about this form of interaction with another human that leads to real and substantive psychological damage and harm? And I think when your body isn't under your control, that leads to a panic, anxious, traumatic response. So for example, rape victims say frequently that their most common reaction to or thought uh, about their assault, even when no more force is used than the force to complete the act, no more force than the rape itself, and by that excluding guns and knives and, and weapons, is that they believe they were going to be killed. Um, and so there's something about having control of our own bodies that is central to human psychological functioning and well-being. And in the context of prostitution, buyers think they're entitled to the bodies of the people they are buying. And they feel because they paid, they're entitled to use them in any way that they wish. And even if we grant that maybe some of the acts are consensual to the extent that there was an agreement to change the money and I'm willing to do X. The buyer may then press Z, a, a certain series of other acts. And resisting that or refusing that in the moment, it's structurally difficult and or impossible. And so I think being in that position, especially over and over and over again. People in brothel prostitution are uh, engaging in transactional sex 10, 15 times a day, five to seven days a week. And that leads to psychological harms that represent in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and complex PTSD. Not to mention that they are also raped on a routine basis. So I think the problem I have with this argument is that it could mean two conclusions, different conclusions. Okay. The one conclusion could be you're concluding about what policy should be. So what the state's policy should be on whether prostitution in general is, should be allowed or not. And so mm -hmm. you're saying empirically, 
there's so many cases where X and Y happen and X and Y are unacceptable. So we should ban this as a phenomenon. And that form of conclusion, I find much more plausible than a different conclusion, which is anyone engaging in this phenomenon is engaging in an immoral practice. And I'm not saying- Oh, I don't say that. Okay, good. So what I want to check is- Okay, so when you say prostitution should be banned or is, what is the conclusion? Is it prostitution wrong? Do we need to look on a case-by-case basis for the moral claim? I'm not making an oral, a moral argument. I am making an argument about what the best policy is to ensure equality for women in particular, but equality for all ultimately. And that pushes back against a dominant narrative that says the route to either freedom or equality is full legalization so that everybody can just do as they please and the state has no business in it. Um, if you do that, social power manifests in ways that the least off or the most unequal are least in a position to enjoy freedom and equality and people with power will. So as far as morality goes, my, none of my premises are based in a substantive view of morality. They are based in a substantive view of equality defined politically and legally, but not morality. So do I think a woman or anyone engaging in transactional sex is doing something morally wrong? Absolutely not. And I also think there should be no legal consequences for that person. Do you think the person engaging the prostitute services is doing something morally wrong? My argument doesn't depend on that view. And I don't make that argument. I do think that a certain form of masculinity and entitlement underwrites that element to sex. And there's been a lot of research on the attitudes of sex buyers and how they view women. And I write about this in the third chapter of my book. And they score much higher on empirical tests for the use of interpersonal violence and what some people might call toxic masculinity or the belief that men are entitled to sex. So as a philosopher who also thinks about morality, I think those are destructive and harmful views and people using people in that way would do better to reflect upon who they are in the world and who they want to be and how they want to relate to others. But nothing in my argument depends on saying you're morally bad. Stop it. So I have a Two questions. I was going to say two-part question, but they're not really the same question. So one is, I found it a little bit puzzling that you say that you're, you're not advancing a moral argument because there is oh. a sense in which concepts of equality and freedom are moral concepts. Now, you might not be cleaving to a specific conception of equality and freedom. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But it seems that your argument is a moral argument, ultimately. Well, it's a norm. If- yes. Yes, no. yes, yes. It's a normative argument. And maybe another, we'll have another podcast on political liberalism. Yeah. <laughs> which I've also written on. And so my view is that the state should not advance any particular view of morality, but rather should advance political values that are shared among a variety of reasonable comprehensive doctrines. And so equality is one such value. Now, of course, equality can mean different things to different people. So I take myself to be offering an interpretation of political equality that is consistent with the other commitments of a generally liberal framework. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I was also thinking about my second question, but I think I'm changing my mind. But anyway, I'll ask it. So 
I, I get the whole I get the whole part about toxic masculinity and men feeling entitled to having sexual access to women and all that. But I'm also wondering about a case in which you have a man, for instance, yeah. who is still doing something wrong, even though he doesn't buy into this masculine. He could be like a very timid, shy kind of guy, right. like Jason a little bit. But he's also he also goes to a woman, for instance, sex a prostitute. He knows very well that she is in it because she has to be in it, basically. He knows that what she gets paid is not even close to compensating for the kind of labor that she does, yet he's still willing to go ahead with the, with the sexual act. And it seems to me that he's doing something wrong in the sense that he is knowingly and intentionally exploiting someone's position. Now, it's a complicated argument because somebody could say the fact that he's willing to do this shows that he still has this entitlement thing in, 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 in the back of his mind. Or someone can basically argue that it's also complicated because at least the woman is getting some money. At least she's able to basically make some money. But I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about a case like this. Yeah, I think the standard way this gets presented to me as an objection is what about disabled people? Some people can't have sex. Uh, and I just find the premise of that so offensive, right? It's lots of people with disabilities are able to have sex on whatever terms they wish that don't involve using people in prostitution. So I think, let me regroup the question here. The question is effectively, is that guy doing something wrong or what would I say to him? Yeah, that, that is that guy doing something wrong that has nothing to do with the issue of entitlement, basically. It, it is wrong because he is taking advantage of a person's, ex he's exploiting a person's uh, sure. terrible predicament, basically. Sure, yeah. I think if one presses on this, the, it gets really hard to think about any kind of engagement or consumption in the modern world. So... What I mean is when I teach my students, it's hard to, everything you do involves someone being exploited somewhere, right? So the strawberries I bought today at Whole Foods in likelihood were picked by an undocumented worker in Southern California who is probably paid a pittance and is doing this for survival. And the clothes I wear, even if I try to do all these things conscientiously, the way the modern world is constructed, basically, if you consume anything, you are in some way in a chain of exploitation. Now, that's not intended as a defense of prostitution. It's a critique of the modern world and the way that capitalism has structured the conditions under which we all live and who's on, on which end of it. But I do think that something about, and this would be an interesting thing to think about further, the interpersonal face-to-face Faith exploitation, right? If I am hiring the person to clean my house for very little money because I know that uh, she can't get work in any other conditions, and that seems different than buying the strawberries. And maybe that's about the things I can have direct control over and or the range of opportunities available to me. It doesn't matter where I buy my strawberries there's going to be exploitation involved in having gotten them, even though I don't see any of it. But in the case of lurking around a neighborhood known to populate people looking for work as undocumented, if I use the power of my privilege and position 
to exploit them one-to-one. That does feel different to me. It seems to me like the driving force behind the argument is the same reason why most people who don't already agree with a conclusion wouldn't buy it once you give, it, give them the argument. And that's the idea that we have coercion everywhere. As soon as right. you have significant inequality, it automatically produces coercion. As soon as you have someone who has to participate in an activity for threat of losing their home or being unable to feed their children, then whatever they're doing is coercive. And so whatever, they're, whatever employer is asking to perform that action is doing something wrong. A lot of people right. just disagree with that, right? So if they don't buy into that initial premise, would there be any reason to accept your conclusion? Yeah, I think there are lots of people who work jobs they don't prefer. And the Walmart worker who's paid minimum wage is probably unhappy, certainly exploited, and a part of the capitalism network by which we get cheap goods. However, and that's an injustice, and we should do something about it, in my view. However, you don't have the same kind of harm and injury that happens when you are systematically used for someone else's sexual purposes and the resulting effects of that. I do think the argument turns on this fact about human beings that is just in a way contingent, but nonetheless deeply true that our sexuality and our sexual economy is foundational to our personal identity and sense of self and being in the world. And that is one way in which I, in, in, if you want to chat about that, the, the, the slogan sex work is work like any other form of work is the argument goes like this. Uh, okay. Assume that's true. Sex work is work like any other form of work. Then it would also be true that it should adhere to basic occupational health and safety standards. That would be true in any other work context. And then I go through the kinds of OSHA as an example, but I also looked at other countries standards for dealing with bodily fluids, potentially infectious diseases and things of that nature and show that actually none of the acts in sex work could be commit, could be done if we followed OSHA guidelines. Okay. The response to that argument is, of course, we're going to have sex work specific ones. Aha. Oh, so you want an exemption for sex work because you think what sex is different and you unique, but then you just tell me that sex was work like any other form of work. And part of that argument depended on the idea that trading your body is no different than trading your mind. So engaging in transactional sex is no different than being a professor. It's because people like me are so hung up on our bodies and feminists are crazy vis-a-vis like protectionism about bodies, minds and bodies. Like I'm sharing my ideas with you. This is so intimate that for some people is way more intimate than transactional sex or casual sex or whatever. Okay. But it is different. And the reason it's different is because of the kinds of actual concrete, that's a hypothetical kind of thought experiment, but the actual concrete particular harms that people suffer require certain forms of protection that even places like Germany that legalize it have all sorts of exemptions. And we can talk about the, what I find somewhat humorous one, the idea that transactional sex is a unilateral contract. 
And they've written that into the law because they recognize that if you treat sex like any other form of work and you've engaged in a contractual agreement, that failure to make good on the contract has legal consequences. It can include not in most cases, but I talk about this in the book, it can include specific compliance. That's rare, but it does happen. And it does happen in cases in which the service is unique. So think about George Michael Prince or Ketchum's conflict with their record label. They were prevented from recording music with anyone else and were under, it's not exactly a kind of requirement of specific format. If you're going to do music, you have to do it under the contract you agreed to. We're never going to do that with sex, right? You've agreed to sex and you say, oh, I want to do it. You're not going to do, that would be like state mandated rape if they enforce that contract. So that's obviously crazy. But if people renege on contracts, there are damages that can be pursued in the event that your expectations weren't met. And people who use women in prostitution have sued them for failing to deliver the goods they contractualize. These cases have been thrown out with good reason. But my point just simply is, if you're going to say it's work like any other work, and you're going to argue that any other argument is about hanging up the specialness of sex of the body, all the exemptions depend upon that. And you can't have it both ways. And once we get into why the exemptions are justified, now we're in the grounds of, okay, what are the real harms that health sensitive and pervasive are they? And there is no way in which we could ever treat it as work like any other form of work, we're going to have to treat it differently. Why are we going to have to treat it differently? And now what conclusion does that lead to? It sounds to me like there's going to be a lot of different areas where you'll agree it is work, and yet there's special dispensations and special rules around them. So one of those examples, which is a nice parallel with your initial case, would be child actors. So yeah. child actors are not allowed to work more than a certain number of hours in many states per day. One of the reasons being that if they work more than a certain number of hours in a certain role, being the child of a parent on set, for example, so they're acting as a child of a certain parent who isn't their real parent, is that it can mess with their development. So they can form weird attachments that aren't real, etc. But we, I think we would want to say that child acting is a form of work, right? And we wouldn't want to dismiss that categorization just because there's special rules around it. Why is this dissimilar? It's work in the sense that it's labor and it's effort and it's so on. The, the point of the slogan, which isn't mine, I'm criticizing it, is that it can't be treated like other forms of work because of the way in which sex is related to bodily autonomy and the harms that follow. Now, with respect to child actors, there probably should be more substantive protections than there are, especially in the re reality TV genre in which these horrific people display their children's lives, public consumption. And then the children grow up and detest that was their childhood and their parents. I think there's a couple of examples in the U.S. If you haven't seen them, you're lucky. One is about, oh, I don't know, the Kate Gosling and all the children she had and the other one is little people, big world in which these children are now estranged from their parents because of the condition. So I think I guess there's two answers. One, there probably should be more protection for children than 
there are. Maybe they should have a guardian guardian ad litem or someone who's pursuing their interest that isn't their parent who stands to economically benefit from them. So that might be a thought in that arena. I don't know that area of law. But I'm not denying that there is labor and effort and work as a, in that sense. My point is simply that it's not employment. It can't, no, it, that's not my point. My point is it cannot be treated legally like any other form of employment. Let me give you one more argument. See if you're compelled by this. Take the slogan, sex work is work like any other work, form of work. What follows from that, at least in the U.S. and other countries and jurisdictions, is that it is illegal to discriminate on the basis, now we've got this new court case of God only knows, but let's just, prior to Gorsuch's opinion in the gay website case, you could say confidently that denying someone service on the basis of their membership in a protected class, whether that be race, sex, or disability status, or anything like that, is a civil rights violation, right? Now, if you treat sex work just like any other form of employment in the public realm, and that includes independent contractors, you cannot deny the service on those protected grounds. You, if you are a person in prostitution who wants to refuse sex, either because you're a bigot or because you have a rule, I won't have sex with any man over 80. It reminds me of my grandfather creeps me out or whatever the reason is. You have just violated their civil rights because you cannot refuse service for membership in a protected class. There's also this interesting question of saying she's a woman. There are exceptions to this, but right in other case law. So the sex thing could work out legally, but the others are harder. Uh, a disability, including being HIV positive, refusing services if certain conditions are met isn't prohibited or excuse me, is prohibited. So misdemeanors, for example, a close analogy, and I explore this in the book, cannot refuse to massage someone who's HIV positive. And that's right. That seems right. Okay. If we're going to treat it like any other form of employment, then the civil rights protections of, quote, clients or buyers carry the weight. You follow me? This is to rebut the argument that treating it like any other form of work would enhance the sexual autonomy of people in prostitution. In fact, it would reduce it. And there empirically, this isn't just the philosopher's thought experiment. And much of the research I did in New Zealand and Australia, refusing someone for grounds other than the fact that they were obviously severely intoxicated entailed a 300, not U.S. dollar, fine. Uh, for the brothel, the woman in brothel prostitution. So sexual autonomy is not enhanced by treating it as in any other form of work. I also think that the civil rights argument shows that treating it other, as any other form of work is a dramatic reduction in the ideal that people can control their sex and sexuality and make choices, or you're going to have another exemption. And now we've got another reason to say that original premise of work like any other form of work doesn't work. The saying is not that you'd have to basically exempt in many forms much of the substance of sexual harassment law. I really like this last argument. I do. Thank you. And it's the reason why I want to remove all those prohibitions against choosing who you can provide services to. To me, across the board? 
yeah, so to me, that's a good reductio against against that prohibition rather than a reductio against prostitution as work like any other work. Wait, hang on. So you think that the person who wants to make the website should not be required to make the website for someone because they're gay or I'm a professor, I don't like category X, so I'm not going to teach them. You think that's permissible? Yeah, I think that in order for the libertarian position to be oh. consistent, I think you've got to say you can't have these regulations in all cases because you create these really weird, these, this is the problem with regulations generally is you create salt examples unintentionally, which then you have to either provide a special provisor in which, as you right. say, I think there's a very good argument for saying that if you're saying this is work like any other work, why should I have special provisos? So you either have to have special provisos per industry, or you've got to scrap the original rule, which is right. what I think the libertarian must do. But I think that's a reductio of libertarianism. Yeah, so I, if, I just if, don't see the problem with it. I just don't see the issue. So I, don't, it, I don't share the intuition. You don't share the intuition that if I say I hate members of this group of, say, in, I mean, the U.S., right? I, I won't say me because it's just not me, but someone says I don't like African-Americans. I don't want them in my presence. I have a pizza shop. They're not permitted here. You think that's okay? So I think it's complicated. I can tell you as a gay man, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't mind being denied service at a wedding venue or a cake maker saying, no, I won't make you your cake. I'd be fine with that. In the case of the African-Americans not allowed in a certain shop, I think that it's immoral. I think it's definitely moral. And I think it's immoral in a way that the service provider saying to me, I won't make your cake is not mm -hmm. immoral. I think there's big disanalogies there. Okay, uh, fine. There's very important questions around availability of service. So that's right. the only pizza shop, right? And no black people can get pizza in the city. That's a problem. Or let's say this is the only place that makes websites and they won't make them for right. gay people. So gay people can't have websites. Then that's right. a much bigger problem, right? So you could have right, a right, provisor right. like that. But yeah, I just don't share the, the intuition that in an individual case, there's always a problem with denying service based on a protected ground. Okay, I see. I think the way I tend to think about this is that if we look at, say, U.S. history, especially in the emergence of civil rights legislation, and I, I teach law of law, and I used to teach at University of San Diego Law School, and we look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and I ask my students, why are these things on the list? Why is it about housing? Why is it about education? Why is it about voting, interstate commerce, hotels and so on? Why? How did they make that list? And here's the dog. And, and I get them to the answer that because that's the forms of discrimination that were experienced by people of color in the U.S. at that time. And the same is true, I think. Other work I've done on pornography, I've defended Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin's approach to pornography. And if you read their definition, it's very specific. And I asked my students, how'd they come up with that definition? And inevitably, one of them always says, what I think is the right answer is they looked at a lot of pornography and then looked at the empirical research about the way it harms. So my thought about civil rights legislation in particular is it's very grounded. It's not and this is the way law is. It's not an abstract thought experiment done by a philosopher. What areas of life should we cover? Legislation is written in response to the concrete and particularized forms of oppression 
members of groups have experienced and the idea that without state intervention, the social power by the dominant classes, whether that be white or men, will remain uh, intact. So that's why I'm very motivated and interested and sympathetic to civil rights-based approaches, because I think the status quo of who has power will remain in power, whether that's socially or politically or whatever else, will be true without some form of intervention. I, so I have a question about consent, actually, but I can come back to it in a little bit. I would like to present an argument that preserves the idea that sex work is work. I'm not sure that I'm convinced of it myself, but I would like to hear your thoughts on it, Lori. That also takes into account some of the objections that you have given. And it okay. harkens back to something that Jason said earlier. But so the thought would be, and this is not developed, but the thought would be that whenever we think about work, we also, whatever regulations we come up with that surrounds that kind of work, have to be sensitive to the nature that the work is, basically. Granted that sex work is work in the sense that it involves labor. And it also involves the decision of the person, we can set concern, issues of consent aside for a second, that it also involves the decision of the person to say, look, I'm going to go into the line of work in which I would like to sell my sexual services to other people, right? Mm -hmm. So grant that it is work in this respect, but then when we come to think about whatever regulations should govern it, we also have to think about these regulations as not being of a type that we just take from another area and apply them to sex work, we also have right. to think as sensitive to the nature of the sex work itself. So two implications of this would be, for example, that we cannot take the, the regulations that would put in a laboratory and apply them to sex, because as you said, then no transaction could possibly ever happen. So we say to the seller of sex, look, caveat emptor, you basically enter into this agreement knowing the dangers, although we are still willing to regulate it to make sure that there is no rape and what's, what's what more. And then as far as the civil rights thing, and maybe I'm trying to have my cake here and eat it at the same time, but somebody can say, given how intimate sexual experience can be, and given that in dating contexts, we do not require people to date people just because they want to be politically equal, although there are some philosophers who are arguing against this. Right. We also say in the nature of sex work, the sex worker or the prostitute should have some leeway in terms of deciding which clients they would like to see and which clients they would not like to see, even if some of those clients happen to be, to belong to a certain age group or to a certain race or to a certain sex or whatnot. So there could be a way in which we preserve the idea that sex workers work while at the same time coming up with regulations that fit the nature of the work it is. And I'm wondering what mm -hmm. you think. Mm -hmm. about. I think a couple of things. One is that the stuff about working in a laboratory and what kinds of protections, right? Whether safe working conditions are met. The reasons for the particular protections in those fields are not about the field, although they address certain dangers, they're about the underlying aim to protect human welfare and or protect people from undue harm or reasonable protection in the context of working for money, which it can be, as we've discussed previously, inherently exploitative. And so I think giving up on the idea that those protections can be met in sex work shows a real problem because the risk is extraordinarily high. People may undertake that risk, but often that's 
done in a context of few options and or other forms of coercion. So that's one issue. The other issue, though, is to get back to actually the sort of way that I try to frame this. The question I'm interested in is what should the state do? Right. So you might have the view the state should do nothing. And people, a market will emerge. It will regulate itself. Right. That's one view. Another view is that a market has emerged and there should be, we regulate all sorts of markets that involve contract and employment relations. And so there should be some form of regulation. And then the question is, what form of regulation might that be? Right. The absolutely no regulation view is rare because there's at least recognition of certain forms of vulnerability that the state has an obligation. Children, for example, people under the age, people coerced directly by another individual, whether that's a pimp or a boyfriend or a husband or a parent or whatever it is, right? So some regulations, Jessica Flanagan actually doesn't hold that view, but she is, while a friend of mine, an extreme libertarian who has views that many people would find shocking. For example, she thinks you could use drugs up until the eighth month 29th day of your pregnancy and done no harm. She, at least, and that the state couldn't do anything about it. But she has really hands-off views. Very few people accept that. So now the question, the real debate on the table is full criminalization, which is what we have in most parts of the U.S., although not all, Nevada being an exception. And there, both Jessica and I in the book and in general agree that that's a terrible uh, system. Because it's like criminalizing people in prostitution dramatically harms them. It's disproportionately enforced against them. They get basically in further debt and indentured servitude. It's awful. And it's a, grie a grievous injustice. So now our options are some form of semi-decriminalization or legalization. Or what I advance is the equality or Nordic model in which it's asymmetrically treated. Now, I'll grant, let's grant as a hypothesis that there is a significant amount of fully consensual prostitution. In context in which you have legalization, I don't think that's true, but I'm just going to grant that premise to my imaginary opponent. You have, once you go to legalization, decriminalization, you have huge influx of trafficking. This is especially true in Europe. And th this case of, once you've created a permissive market, the supposing there's the consensual pool, the consensual pool of participants is not great enough to fuel the uh, to fit the demand, and so demand is then met through really horrific and coercive measures, and so we've got a market that exists, and the question is what to do about that market. And permissive policies create greater context of trafficking and harm. Traffic, we can talk about the definition of trafficking. I think much of what passes as, quote, standard prostitution is, in fact, trafficking. Uh, but even using the more restrictive definition, trafficking involving force, fraud, and coercion. And interestingly, just for a note, trafficking is defined legally as force, fraud, and coercion. People think it's about moving across borders. It's not. That's not the issue. Although... That also happened. But even under the more restrictive definitions of forced fraud and coercion, you get massive trafficking. I cite in the book various studies by economic uh, economists 
who have no skin in the game of regulation. They don't hold a view. They're just interested in the data. And the data suggests that you get massive trafficking input. So that is something that then the state bears responsibility for creating the conditions for that to occur. So I've got two related questions. The one is why throw the baby out with the bathwater? So why not just say, let's criminalize certain elements of this industry, for example, trafficking, without criminalizing all elements of this industry? So that's one, one question. And a related question is, there's certain forms of, some people might call it sex work. I'd be curious to hear whether you would call it sex work. I know you don't like sex work as a term generally. So I'd be curious to know how you classify this. So OnlyFans has become more and more popular over time. There's no physical contact in many cases, but in some cases there is. I'd be curious to know in those cases what you think of OnlyFans, whether it should be banned in the same way as other forms of prostitution. And the reason I raise this is it seems to exclude many of the elements that you're saying are a problem. And couldn't, if you think OnlyFans is okay, and I don't know if you do, but if you think it's okay, wouldn't that be the model to use for prostitution? OnlyFans is pornography. And so it requires a different analysis because pornography historically involves speech issues and prostitution involves conduct issues. And so you need a different analysis and a different paradigm. I also have views about pornography and how to treat it. And I don't think it should be, but I think there should be civil rights legislation so that people who suffer certain forms of harm from a very specific definition can get redressed if needed, including having their images taken down when they're circulated against without their desire or intention. So I think OnlyFans requires an analysis of pornography. Prostitution requires a different analysis. And the one I try to provide in in this book and another various thing. Now I forgot the other question. So just before we get to the other question, it's not clear to me why there's such a firm distinction in certain cases. I understand in others where let's say, for example, someone films themselves and publishes the films. That seems like straightforward pornography to me too. But there's often only fans that take requests. So they take requests from people who will type on their keyboards. They, those requests could be right. live. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. It seems to me they're like the line yeah, between yeah. sex work or prostitution and OnlyFans is now very slim, very thin. Sure. So pornography is a form of prostitution, I think. It's just a different form. And so my response was actually just acknowledging the legal framework within which we live. And so if you're going to design a legal approach, thinking about only fans, you're going to have to address the fact that that will be seen as a speech issue. Prostitution has never been seen as uh, uh, invoking freedom of expression issues. And so legally it, it entails and requires a different analysis. But I do think that generally pornography with a specific definition is a form of prostitution. I had a student once who did stand up and he, I, we taught about pornography or I taught them about pornography in the class and he had written a joke and he came to me and I was like, let me make sure I understand this. Does this joke work? And the joke went something like this. Basically, if you just bring a camera along with you, as you're hiring someone in prostitution, you've got a free speech defense. Now, it was funny. I'm just expressing that 
student, if you're watching this, I know your version of it was funny. And what I just said wasn't funny, but his basic idea is that you can get out of any prosecution charge as long as you have a camcorder on you. That isn't exactly right, but. So if I follow the argument, prostitution should be criminalized in the Nordic model, right? So where. No, 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 no. Buying sex is criminalized. But now. Prostitution. Okay. Okay. But, but now pornography is a form of prostitution. OnlyFans is a form of oh. pornography. And so. Should OnlyFans be banned too? And you should pornography be banned? No and no. So, well, if you want to talk about pornography, we really should do another podcast. Whether that argument, apart from the legal structures which we live in, goes through, I'd have to give some thought to. But the Supreme Court in the United States and various other places, things that are images that don't involve conduct between the consumer and the provider are treated as expression. There is this case and I have to think about its name. Is it free people versus Freeman in California in which that there were two and I'll have to think about the name so I could email you later and tell you the name and you can just over voiceover. But basically the issue was whether pornography is prostitution and the answer the court gave it makes no sense, but it goes like this because one of the arguments, there are other arguments, but one of the arguments is because in pornography, the person paying is paying other people for purposes other than their own sexual gratification. It's not prostitution. So that would mean if you pay your friend's bill at the brothel, then the people, then there's no, it doesn't make any sense. They also raised the issue of uh, freedom of expression. And the court is famous for line drawing conundrums. How can we know whether or not something is art or pornography? It's a massive mystery. The advantage of the approach that McKinnon wrote is the definition is very concrete and specific. And so I think the line drawing problems don't occur within that definition, but that would require another hour to work through. So true in that case, I should add a footnote that Something meeting the definition she defends doesn't entail that anything's actionable. There have to be specific harms that are enumerated in the second part of the statute. And very few people pay attention to the fullness of the statute and how it would work. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. Okay. So I've been thinking about consent a lot. And one of your arguments, Lori, is that one of the major, one of the issues with prostitution, and I, I, and I fully get that trust me, is the idea that sex and sexual autonomy, sex is such an intimate activity in many ways that a lot of studies indicate that there is PTSD and all that. And I can completely see why. On a side note, I don't know whether there have been any studies done on men engaged in prostitution, because there could be interesting differences between the way men react to certain sexual encounters that they don't necessarily desire versus women who interact with those. But anyway, putting that aside, there isn't, one of the issues is whether some women who go into prostitution are willing to consent to prostitution knowing that type of bodily issues that they might, and psychological issues that they might have to go through in the future. Now somebody can, look, nobody willingly consents to be having PTSD, but I think that's a little bit debatable. 
versus women who go into it supposedly consenting, not knowing what the potential consequences are. Now, what's, what I think, so of course, the, sec the latter type of class is, is a whole different issue. There's no genuine consent going on. What's interesting about the former class is that sometimes philosophers talk about consent in such a way that anytime there is any pressure on someone, then <clears throat> we cry foul. There is no consent, which to me is interesting because it robs the, the, con the concept of consent from its really incredible power, which is the idea that consent becomes really vital precisely when we have adverse conditions. In other words, I don't really care about one one consents to something under perfectly ideal conditions. Well, there's no issue there. What I really care about is knowing that somebody genuinely consented because there is some sort of adverse condition and pressure. Now, there's going to be a point where those conditions are going to become so severe that we cannot really talk about consent anymore. But there could be like not ideal world condition, but not terrible world conditions, say middle world conditions in which people do have to make difficult choices, but they do them, they make them, and they genuinely consent to them, even if they know that some of the consequences are going to be risky. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, basically, as far as the notion of prostitution. And I know this is a big question to ask at the end, but I, anything that you sure, would say? Sure. I think, so here's some interesting empirical stuff, and then I'll elaborate. In this massive study done by Melissa Farley, of people actively in prostitution, 89% that they wanted to exit. Percent didn't. Okay. Presumably some of those 11% would actually wish to exit, but some number, uh, although a massively, relatively small number, wouldn't. And so in thinking about this, here's the way I've thought about it. You have to grant that there probably are some people who are satisfying whatever reasonable criteria of consent we could enumerate or defend. And so then the question, and this is where I go to the policy issue, is, okay, if we're legislating, are we legislating for, for the 99% the of the 1%? So an analogy I often use in class is think about, suppose I have a really substantive critique of the food industry. Either it's treatment of animals or it's treatment of workers or the unhealthy amounts of sugar they pump into it, and you object there's a local farmer's market just down the street where I can get locally grown, organically sourced, da, 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 da. That's great, but the world is craft foods and McDonald's and people are harmed and animals are harmed by that industry. So if we're going to create change there and regulations there to protect the vulnerable, including veal, for example, then what the organic farmer's market is doing it is, you know, interesting or something to consider, but it isn't the basis for our approach. And laws, whether fortunately or unfortunately, are general and broad and sweeping in their character. 